Hey guys, Joe Evangelisti here from the Flip King Real Estate Radio. Really excited about today's uh, show. Today we're going to talk about budgets. We're going to talk about staying under budget, how you can blow your budget, and what you need to worry about when you're building a budget for a rehab deal. So, on the way down the shore here to check out a property, hopefully you're here with me and you're listening and you're taking notes. So grab a pen and paper. Here goes. Thanks for tuning into the Flip King Real Estate Radio. Whether you're a beginner or seasoned real estate vet, we are looking to help you grow your business and better your life with real world deal examples, tools and tricks for your daily business, and good old fashioned motivation to get you in the game. We're here to see your real estate business grow to fit your lifestyle, whether for straight cash or cash flow. Grab a pen and notebook and get ready to grow. It's the Flip King Real Estate Radio Show. Now, here's your host, Joe Evangelisti. Blowing your budget. It's what everybody worries about, right? It's what, I, what all the new people that haven't been in the business yet or haven't gotten into their first flip deal, whenever they call me and say, I want to talk, I want to learn how to get into the game, I want to learn how to get into the business, it's always the first topic that we talk about. We talk about what's it going to cost? How much are you going to spend on the house? How much are you going to spend on the rehab? Who am I going to hire? I even talk to seasoned investors about this all the time. What are you spending on your projects? What are you spending on tile? What are you spending on paint? You know, it's one of those topics that never seems to kind of go away, no matter how invested are you are in this business, no pun intended. You know, no matter how far along you get, no matter how many flips you get, you do, no matter how many you have under your belt, you're always worried about budget. I mean, to this day, I'm worried about budget and we're doing a ton of flips. So we're always worried about what we're going to spend. Today, I hope you have a pen and paper. I hope you're ready to take some notes. I'm going to try to drop as much knowledge as I can on you on the way down. I'm on the way, what we call down the shore in New Jersey, but I'm heading down to the beach to actually look at a flip deal that we just got a, a bit acceptance on. And um, so I apologize if the audio quality isn't so hot. Uh, I'm recording this on my phone as I always do and I uh, have some time to kill here. So here we go. Let's talk about budget. Let's talk about specifically blowing your budget. Let's talk about what to look for in your walkthrough first. So, you know, as investors, we're always going to go take a look at a property. And generally, this is where this happens early on, right? This is going to happen before we even make an offer. We're going to go look at a property and we have to develop a rough budget. So we need to know what a rough budget is and hopefully a conservative rough budget of a property rehab before we tell the realtor or the wholesaler or whoever buying the property from, um, you know, what we're going to pay for the house. Right. So just some, you know, quick background. Like if you're going to make an offer on a house, you need to know what you can sell it for when it's done, what your spread is going to be and what it's going to cost you to rehab the property. Now I'll get into a whole nother episode about what that spread means. And I'm sure if you ask around, a million different investors will give you a million different answers. And I can talk about that in the future. But today I really want to talk about the budget for the actual rehab and what to look for when you're in the property. So in my initial walkthrough of a property, when I'm determining what my offer is going to be or what my final offer is going to be, rather, because a lot of times we make offers kind of sight unseen, and then we go back and we reevaluate the property to make sure that our offer was, was good before we go to contract, right? So I'm going to go look at major components of the property. I'm going to make sure that, first of all, it's, it's already met certain criteria or we wouldn't, wouldn't have made an offer to begin with. And those criteria for me are a certain amount of bedrooms, certain amount of square footage in a certain area, on and on. 
Uh, again, every different investor, every different area, every, everyone has their own story. But when we make our offer, it's based on those certain criteria. Now, when I approach the property for the first time, I want to look at certain things. So starting with the exterior of the property, we want to look at what? We want to make sure that in my area, and again, this is different for everybody's area, windows are a big factor. So the exterior shell of the property being weather tight and weatherproof, you know, I'm from the Northeast, so we deal with hot, like right now it's 92 degrees as I record this, and we deal with cold. I mean, it gets down to, you know, negative 10 wind chills sometimes. So we have a big array of different temperatures and our houses have to be able to withstand all those differences in temperature. So again, the exterior of the building, we look at windows, we look at doors, we look at things that could leak um, airflow, um, things that could leak water, obviously. So we're looking at the shell of the property. And I'm right by that, I mean the roof, the exterior windows. I'm looking at exterior doors. I'm looking at the condition of the siding. I'm looking at uh, different points that water could infiltrate the uh, the foundation. Most, again, in my area, most properties are on basements and they, the basements get wet. So I look at, okay, where are the downspouts going? Are they causing water issues in the basement? So on and so forth. So these are major components. Now, depending on the price point that I'm looking at and the renovation that, that, we're, that we're looking to do or the price point that we're looking to sell the property for, all these things determine on how major the rehab is. For instance, in some areas, we have to reside the house. I mean, as long as the siding is in decent shape in some areas, we don't reside the house. But in certain price points, if I'm selling a house for five or $600,000, then people want to see the house resided. They want to see new siding. So we're going to put that in the budget. But if I get, if I dip below a certain point, let's say below $200,000 in my neighborhood, again, different for everyone's market, I might say we can repaint the exterior of the house or we can get away with just doing the front elevation of the house and painting the other three sides. Um, assuming that the siding is in good condition, I would never paint bad siding or siding that was torn or had leaks or anything like that. But if it's a solid property and we can paint the three sides, but you want to make the front look good, that's an option for us. So I'm looking at the exterior. Again, windows, big thing. Windows for us generally have to be replacement. Most of the time, they're vinyl, double hung, double tilt, insulated windows because we're in a spot where in the winter, the electric and heat bills are very high. You need the most insulation you can get, which is generally out of your insulated windows and making sure your exterior walls are insulated and your doors are tight. So I'm walking the outside on the, on, on the first uh, go around. The roof, generally in our condition, in, in, our, in our situation, if it's in good condition and it's not leaking, and generally if it's less than, let's say, 15 or 20 years old, in our, in our neck of the woods, we're going to leave the roof alone. Now, aesthetically, a lot of times roofs are on their last legs. And again, but to, depending on price point, we might decide to put the roof on. It's every, every, every project is a little bit different. So then I get inside the house, right? And what are we looking for inside the house? Well, generally when I'm inside the house, I want a layout that is generally usable the way it is. I'd like to prefer to see that we don't do major renovations to structural walls or really any type of partition in a house if we can avoid it. Now, there are certain times, and I'm going to get to that in a couple minutes, there are certain times where you go through a house and you say, you know what, this non-low-bearing wall would make all the difference of the world if it was removed. And we do that a lot of times. If there's a non-low bearing wall between a kitchen and a bathroom, a kitchen and a dining room rather, and we feel like it's going to open up the flow, then we'll take a non-low bearing wall down. Now there's also times where we think again, the price and the outsell is going to benefit us. We'll take, uh, load bearing walls down and put beams in place. 
Um, a little bit more pricey, a little bit more expensive to get done. Sometimes it, it really adds a lot of value depending on what type of layout you're dealing with. If you can open things up, people love the open concept right now, right? So again, first thing I look at is layout. We already know just about the size for, for as far as square footage. And I already know how many bedrooms and baths it has before I get there. Again, we probably wouldn't have put an offer in if it was below those two criteria for us. So I know with the size of the house that I have, I'm walking into something that's going to make sense. Is the layout going to make sense? That's a question. So as we walk through, we're looking for things like flooring, wall coverings. In our case, wallpaper is a big thing. Sometimes we're buying 80 to 100-year-old homes and the walls are covered with multiple layers of paper. So I want to know that we have to prep for that. Um, whether or not it's on plaster or drywall makes a big difference as far as prep time and labor cost. Um, in certain areas, I know you're going to deal with textured walls, textured ceilings. Um, you might deal with paneling on a lot of places. And, um, you know, so whatever's on the wall, whatever we need to do to get that wall prepped. Now, I'll tell you, in, our, in my experience, a lot of times if paneling is in really good shape, especially if it's solid paneling, like solid wood paneling, um, we'll paint that. I mean, depending on, again, on a price point and, and, and whether or not it's going to make sense in that, in that particular design. Um, but a lot of times I feel like, you know, paneling sometimes looks good. It looks like, uh, like beadboard kind of. So it really depends on, uh, again, again, your market and whether or not that's something that, uh, would stay. So, um, next big ticket items, of course, we're going to look at the kitchen. We're going to look at the bathrooms. Um, I can tell you that in most scenarios, if you're looking at homes like we're looking at homes and they're bank owned and they're distressed and they're estate sales and, you know, you're generally not going to find a kitchen you can reuse or a bathroom you can reuse. Um, every once in a while we get lucky and we'll get a period, uh, bathroom that has a wet bed tile and maybe it's black and white tile, uh, which is very hot right now. It also happened to be hot 80 years ago. So, uh, maybe you need to repair some of the tiles, but you can get away with just keeping them and, uh, making them look nice. Again, that's pretty rare. Uh, most of the time, we're tearing out kitchens and bathrooms, and we're putting back new kitchens especially because generally, even if a kitchen maybe isn't even that old, um, you know, times have changed. Layouts are different. Um, people want different types of, of, of kitchens, um, open concept kitchens, um, you know, things that uh, generally aren't walled off. So, you know, it's really hard to keep a kitchen nowadays. We will keep kitchens and rental properties. Um, but in the most, in the most part, when we're flipping a house, we're tearing a kitchen out. Next big step is we're going to go to the basement. Generally, the basement is where we're going to find a lot of our big ticket items. Um, one of those big ticket items in, in our, our local neighborhood, again, our local area is electric. Um, electric, I know is a lot, is the thing that a lot of my friends that flip houses around the country don't have to worry about because if the house was built in 40, 30, 40 years ago, generally the electric's going to be fine. It's going to be up to date. It's probably going to have enough extra breakers and extra space and power to be able to um, do the things that you're going to add on and so forth. However, in my area, uh, we deal with a lot of electric upgrades because we have a lot of what's called knob and tube wiring. Um, you can go ahead and Google that fun fact uh, on your own. But knob and tube wiring is, uh, is, pre is prevalent in my neighborhood, my neck of the woods. Um, it has to go. Insurance companies won't insure it. Buyers don't even want to hear about it. Um, it's an unsafe condition and so forth. So when we find a uh, knob and tube, we pretty much know that we're going to have to rewire the house. Now, what comes with rewiring the house, as a side note, is generally a lot of drywall and plaster damage. So those of you who haven't had to rewire a house before, you know, it's not as simple as letting the electrician go through and paying him his, his uh, bid. Let's say he bids uh, $6,000 to rewire a house. 
Well, you can expect a couple thousand dollars in drywall and plaster damage and repairs to follow that $6,000 you just paid your electrician because electrician certainly isn't going to patch your walls when he's done. So just as a good side note. Um, plumbing, again, with plumbing, a lot of old houses we deal with either have cast iron plumbing in their drain lines, which is going to, uh, in, in, in time, is going to rust or break or it's very brittle. Um, you're going to see that uh, the sewer gases actually will start to burn holes in the, in the sewer lines. Um, so, you know, cast iron something that is okay. It can be kept as long as it's in good condition. Um, but you definitely want to check out what kind of condition it's in. It's a mistake that I've made more than a few times buying a house and then having to replace most of the drain lines and not expecting to have to. Um, so plumbing, um, you want to, you want to make sure that, uh, you were going to be moving plumbing, uh, obviously if you're moving your kitchens and baths. So, you know, how much new plumbing do you need versus how much can you save? Um, do you have cast plumbing, cast uh, lines? Do you have um, lead lines? In my area, we come across a lot of lead-based plumbing, lead-based uh, supply lines and drain lines, and uh, lead is probably the worst. Um, not so much because of a safety hazard, which everybody would probably assume, uh, but more importantly, lead starts to fall apart, and uh, it traps things inside, so the drain lines get, get clogged uh, usually quicker. Uh, it just usually has to come out. It's almost a, it's almost a must. So... You know, look at your overall plumbing system. How much overall plumbing work is it going to need? Um, we said electric. We said plumbing. And the, the other thing I always look for is environmental contaminants, right? So, again, in my neighborhood, in my neck of the woods, we have a lot of environmental issues like mold, asbestos. Asbestos can be found in floor tiles, can be found in pipe insulation, duct insulation, um, a lot of different areas of the house, and asbestos definitely has to be uh, remediated, uh, taken out, removed, and, uh, and repaired. And then finally, what we look for, especially in my neighborhood, again, uh, is going to be uh, water infiltration. If I'm down in the basement, i got to make sure i got a dry basement. Like I said, most of the time, water problems in my, in, my, uh, in my area are caused by downspout issues or drainage issues or ground pitching issues. Like, in other words, the ground is pitched towards the foundation. So we want to make sure that if there is water, uh, we have a plan, whether that be, hey, you know what, I think that uh, a couple of uh, downspout extensions are going to solve the problem, or I think it's going to need a, what's called a French drain, which is basically a perimeter drain. I'm sure you might have heard it called a perimeter drain before. If we have to install an, a whole perimeter drain in a basement, that's thousands and thousands of dollars. So again, these are big ticket items that I want you guys to look for when you're out on the project. So I'm sure you're all thinking by now, okay, Joe, you've gone over all the big ticket items. Now, what does it all cost? How do I come up with a budget? So unfortunately, there's no short and sweet answer to that. But here's how I started out. And here's how I suggest that people that are new in this business start out. And that is you have to get bids. And it's a learning process. And yeah, it's a pain in the ass, especially in your first couple deals. You're going to go through a property. You're going to think you have it for the right amount of money you're going to have to call some contractors. Now, there's a question between whether or not you use a general contractor, which is basically someone who's going to manage that job for you, get it done on a certain budget, and very well could subcontract a lot of the work out. Now, we all know when they subcontract the work out, they're putting a markup of their own on top of that work. So the end result is it's going to cost you a little bit more than if you're going to do it yourself. Well, my advice, and I'm not an attorney, by the way, so there's that, there's that uh, disc disclaimer. 
But my advice going forward, when you first get into this business and you're doing your first deal, pay a general contractor. Get a general contractor or a GC to give you a, an entire budget up front for all the work that you want done. Everything that I just named, all the big ticket items, everything that I just talked about, get one person to give you a bid for all of those things. And the reason that is, is because eventually you want to graduate, and I think you do, to hiring your own subcontractors and then saving that money from the general contractor. Now, that's not for everybody. And even though I give you that advice, I still pay a general contractor. Um, I just happen to be uh, related to one, and we do real, a lot of work together. So I would prefer to pay a general contractor. But most of the, I would say, most of the more successful flippers in my neighborhood, my neck of the woods, are full-time flipping real estate, are paying subcontractors or different types of subcontractors. And they might have some of their own employees at this point as well, um, but they're certainly not hiring general contractors. So again, the new guys, if you're listening and you want to get your first deal under your belt, I'm going to say go out there and, and hire a general contractor, get them to give you a bid, get them to give you a solid number and an overall project cost. Now, that's not to say that there won't be overrides, and that's not to say that they won't miss stuff and you won't miss stuff and that you're going to spend more money at the end of the day. But if you look at the big ticket items and you make sure that they're bidding on those big ticket items, you're generally going to be in a lot better shape than uh, if you try to go at it on your own and uh, and hire a bunch of subcontractors and get different prices after the fact. So what I'm trying to advise you to do is get hard numbers before you close on the house. Now, when you get more advanced um, and, and you're able to walk a house, like like I can walk a house at this point in time, and I can come up with a pretty darn solid budget just by walking through it. But that's because I've done it hundreds and hundreds of times. I mean, it doesn't happen overnight. We learn every time we do something that, hey, I forgot to bid the uh, French drain. Oh, my gosh, it's $6,000 on this house, and I'm over budget. This happens from learning, from experience. So the whole idea, hopefully, is that you're learning from me and you're learning from other podcasts that you're listening to and other fellow investors that are out there that have experience in this, you're learning from our mistakes. Um, you know, we, we've, we've made these mistakes, so hopefully you don't have to. Um, so again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say advise at the beginning that you use subs. Um, I'm sorry, they use GCs and not subs. Um, you can graduate to using subcontractors uh, and then you can, you know, individually hire and fire your own electricians and your own plumbers and, uh, and, and anyone else that's uh, that's, that, that, that's, that needs to be on that project. Um, but I'm going to say on your first one, definitely get a solid bid from a, from a, a, a well-known contractor that's been vetted or referred to you by somebody um, who's done investment deals, right? Um, so that's, that's one bit of advice that I recommend, uh, uh, you know, people starting out. Definitely those that have well, well vested and have done this for a long time and understand the business. Um, you know, generally, like I said, they're going with subcontractors. They're running their own crews. Uh, they generally have their own project managers out there getting uh, subcontractor bids and so forth, uh, you know, the more experienced guys. So let's talk about things that you can overspend on and overspend on really easy and things that I look at when I first started out in this business, things that I definitely overspent on and I look back on and I say, you know what, I should have, would have, could have done that differently, right? But hindsight's always twenty twenty, and you live from your mistakes, you learn from your mistakes and you grow. So these are kind of common mistakes that I don't make anymore that, again, hopefully you're taking notes and you learn a little something from, uh, from these mistakes. A um, couple things you can overspend on. I think, obviously, um, finishes. Uh, finishes is probably the number one, the number one thing. Um, finishes, we're talking when you order um, your countertops. 
Do they have to be granite? Uh, do they have to be quartz? Uh, can they be formica? Can they be some sort of butcher block? You know, every area is going to dictate their own finishes. In my, in my neck of the woods, you can't build a house without putting granite in it. Um, if it's a rental property, you'll get away with formica. But for the most part, depending on what price point you're in, um, I mean, I've, I've maybe, uh, I've maybe done two or three formica countertops in the last year. Everything else has been granite. Um, and for a reason, uh, people demand granite and expect granite in our neighborhood and all the competitions doing granite. So, um, you know, we'll do granite, but you have to be very, very cautious and careful at the level of granite that you select. So generally we're doing a, uh, grade two or three granite. Uh, and in general, we're also using a granite supplier that's giving us pricing of a, of a one or two, um, on a two or three granite because we do so much volume. So when you're starting out, definitely try to pick a low end granite, um, you know, a one or a two and, uh, you know, try not to deviate too much from that because once you get to the higher grades, the expenses are astronomical. Um, so if you're going to do granite, my, my opinion is try to find something that makes sense in the lower end granites. Um, because generally the buyers really aren't going to know the difference between a one and a three or four. So, um, try to keep your granite in check. Second one, uh, is tile. Tile is a big one. Uh, I see people go crazy on tile all the time. I see other investors putting in high end tile. I can tell you right now, I have used probably a hundred thousand square feet of white three by six subway tile. And I, I don't even know what I pay for it. I know it's cheap. We do backsplashes, we do tub surrounds, we do um, accent tile walls, we do, we do white subway tile in a lot of places. And I know that's not going to stay in style forever, but right now it's definitely in style. People love it, uh, and it's really, really reasonable. Um, I like to spend a little extra money on accent tile. So whenever we do white tile or we do a field tile that's maybe a standard porcelain beige tile, we'll spend a couple extra bucks to do um, a strip of... Uh, what we call like a highlight tile, or you'll hear people call it uh, uh, the bling, or, or you know something along those lines. We want to give it that extra bit of, of shine, so we'll add um, a couple highlights of glass mosaic tile. That could be uh, it could be round, or it could be um, linear um, glass insert tile. But whenever we do our white subway, we have some sort of accent strip of glass tile, which is going to make it pop. Um, but again, I see people spending. 10, 15, 20 dollars a square foot for floor tile. It's not necessary. Um, frankly, we do so much work with Home Depot and Home Depot in the last couple of years, and I don't get paid from Home Depot, so I'm not plugging them on my show here. But we spend so much time in Home Depot and so much money with them um, that we've actually got to start to use their their tile that they have there, and it's very reasonable, two, three dollars a square foot. And to their credit, they've done a really good job, especially in my area. Uh, again, two or three years ago, the tile selection was horrible, but uh, now it's really fresh, and it, and it rotates uh, every other month or so. There's new selections in there. So we're actually doing a lot of stuff uh, from Home Depot, all the way from our $150,000 homes to our $800,000 homes. You know, we're using different types of Home Depot tile. And, I mean, sometimes we're upgrading and we're doing um, we're doing a marble or, uh, or a travertine, uh, depending on the value and what we're getting. Uh, but generally, I would say the most expensive tile we're using in any of our houses per square foot is somewhere around 4 or $5. Most of the rehab homes are 2 or $3. So again, tile, granite, two big ones. Uh, flooring, same thing. Depending on the price point of your house, I mean, if you're putting hardwood floors in or brand new laminates that are expensive, that are $9, $10 a foot, uh, again, on depending on your market, that's really high. Um, you know, in general, if we're going to, first of all, we buy a lot of old houses. 
that have original hardwood floors, and hardwoods are hot right now, especially, and I know it sounds crazy, but especially the old, beat-up, rustic hardwoods. I mean, if I find old yellow pine or yellow heart pine or old oak floors underneath of uh, old rustic, I mean, old shag carpet, um, we're definitely refinishing the floors. Um, refinishing is costing us about 2 bucks a foot, whereas buying new product is going to cost you 3 $4 a foot plus a couple dollars a foot to install it. So you're definitely going to have some cost savings there. I think if you find yourself hardwood floors, I don't know any market in the country that people aren't looking and liking hardwood floors right now. So I would say for sure, um, if you can have existing hardwoods, uh, go ahead and try to refinish them, uh, make them look nice. Don't spend money on new materials. And I think the uh, last and final big ticket thing that people upgrade that they really don't have to, and I know I touched on this at the beginning of the episode, but anytime you don't have to move a wall, you're saving tons of money. I think what, one of the mistakes that I made early on was, because I thought it was cheap to, to, to deal with moving walls, and I got cocky, and I used to open up walls and move walls. I didn't have to. You know, it's very expensive. I mean, it sounds like it's a couple hundred bucks, cut a hole in that wall, and, you know, call it a day. Uh, if it's a non-load-bearing wall, yeah, it's not a lot of money to take it down, especially if it doesn't require any, any type of engineer letter or anything like that. You know, you can take one down. But you start getting into moving, opening up or moving load-bearing walls, structural stuff like that. You know, it might sound like it's a couple hundred bucks, but by the time you open the wall up, drywall, patch the floor where the wall was, get everything tightened up so it doesn't look like you moved a wall, that stuff ends up costing you hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. And you have to ask yourself at the end of the day, is what I did just worth it? And is, and is it adding at least double what I put in to taking that wall out? Is it adding that much more value to my bottom line, to my to my user's bottom line. Are they paying me more for that product? Uh, and I think a lot of times when you really analyze it like that, you're going to find that you might be taking walls down that you don't have to. You might be reconfiguring bathrooms where you really don't have to. You might be reconfiguring kitchens where you really don't have to. You know, Think about the end product. Think about the result of what you're doing and think about whether or not it's really, really putting money in your pocket before you start tearing up properties. I think one of the uh, key factors that a lot of veteran rehabbers are going to tell you if they had had a chance would be to tell you that not to over-improve where you don't have to. Spend the money on the important things, but don't over-improve where you don't need to. Because a lot of times your rehab, when it's done and it looks nice, is going to kick the crap out of 90% of what's on the market just because it's clean, just because it's new. So it's not always important that you go over and do major rehauls to the overall floor plan and the overall size and, uh, and layout of the property. I talked about the big ticket items of, uh, of plumbing and electric. Always think about plumbing and electric and, and get bids for multiple people. Plumbing and electric to me, are, those are the two uh, subcontractors that always, uh, their, their, their prices waver greatly. I mean, you might get a, bl- a plumbing bid for 3000 You might get a plumbing bid for 6000 on the same project. So we're always very, very cautious and wary about how much our plumbing bids come in at and um, what the competition is saying that, that you know, their bids are in at. Um, also, when you're thinking about subcontractors, I know I'm throwing a lot at you, always think about permits, okay? So, you know, we always get permits. I recommend you get permits. For the amount of money you're going to save by trying to avoid the system and not get permits, uh, I think it always comes back to bite you. I think that, uh, you know, the townships and the, and the, uh, the uh, ordinances that you're dealing with are getting more and more savvy. Um, if you don't get permits for certain things, I'm finding during the, uh, the transition process, the certificate of occupancy process, 
they're starting to find out that there's open permits or permits were never taken out for certain work. And let me tell you, it's always harder to go and backtrack and try to fix work later on or open up walls to show building inspectors that stuff was done properly rather than just bite the bullet and get the permit up front. So the reason I say that is when you're getting your plumbing and your electrical and your major subcontractor uh, quotes, make sure you you figure out whether or not they are supplying the permits or you are supplying the permits. Could could be the difference in thousands of dollars in your uh, cost and your overall budget. So those are the ways that I find we try to maintain a budget. And, you know, there are going to be times when you're over budget, hopefully not too often. I can almost promise you there's never going to be a time when you're under budget. I, I jokingly say all the time that you know, no matter how much we put as a budget, there's no such thing as under budget. But we do try to be conservative. And again, I, I'm very passionate about this one piece of the business because I think this is a lot of the ways that people find themselves either sinking or swimming in this business. They, they decide they're going to spend X and they spend way more and they never do a deal again. And it's really imperative to those who are only doing two or three or four deals a year that you get this part right. Because if you're over budget, and God forbid you overpay, then you're sunk. You're sunk in one deal. And, you know, I don't like to see that happen to anybody. So I like to make sure you have all your ducks in a row ahead of time. Know what you're getting into. Don't overanalyze, but analyze enough where you know that you're making the right decision and that you're actually buying a property that you know you can make profit on. But there's nothing worse than buying a property and not making profit. So anyway, I hope you grow. I hope you learn. And I hope you profit from this episode and I hope it helps you do volume. Feel free, as always, hit us up at the blog, theflipking.com. Put com- uh, Post comments on the blog, post whatever you feel like hearing in the next episode. This was, a, by the way, a great contribution by one of my local fellow investors uh, who wanted to do an episode about this. That's why I'm doing it for him, so shout out to him. He knows who he is. Feel free to comment on the iTunes. Please give us, a, uh, give us some feedback on iTunes. Um, give us some great reviews on iTunes if you think you're getting quality out of this uh, out of this podcast. And I look forward to future episodes. Now go out and kick some ass.